This is our ninth session. So we're getting close to the end of our exegetical process. We're in the interpretive stage at the heart of interpretation. We've dealt with some major issues already. We've looked at issues of the text. Spent some time looking at word studies. Very, very important area. One of the most important areas in the interpretive stage. Last time we began looking at structural analysis. This is thinking God's thoughts after Him, trying to see how writers structure their material, how they put it together in order to communicate ideas. And that's what we want to get at, is what did the authors intend to communicate. And since we're dealing with inspired scripture, we are thinking God's thoughts after Him. So, last time I gave you three ways of analyzing the structure of any given sentence, primarily grammatical structure. We've talked a lot about literary structure before, primarily in the observational stage, but uh, analyzing structure begins with analyzing sentence by sentence by sentence, and then once you have a feel for each sentence, now you take it the next step and you basically see how each sentence relates to one another within a paragraph. And once you understand the essence of every paragraph or each paragraph, then you see how each paragraph relates to the other paragraphs. And paragraphs generally follow in sequence with one another, carrying forward ideas such that when you get through the end of a book, you have a pretty good idea of what the whole book has to say. So, analyzing structure, when we're talking about the sentence, we're talking predominantly the grammatical structure. How is this sentence arranged in terms of each of the words in that sentence? And then after that, we're talking about how do we analyze literary structure? Well, there's no easy way other than thinking through how does this sentence relate to the next sentence? How does the second sentence relate to the third? How do all three of these contribute to the main idea of this paragraph? And then working through paragraph by paragraph, same way. Now, once you have a feel for that, the outline, or creating an outline, or if some people prefer to chart the uh, the material, you can do that as well. But let's talk a little bit about outlining. How do you outline? Now, I mentioned last time that when you do your analysis of grammar, and if you have a feel for how everything fits together, particularly if you do diagramming, as we ended our last session on diagramming, I mentioned that your grammatical analysis, your diagramming, gives you the structure, and all you're doing in outlining is summarizing that structure in an outline form so that you see how the parts fit together. So once you can put together an outline, you have made pretty much your grammatical decisions in terms of relationships, and now you are summarizing 
Basically, those thoughts that are contained in each of those sentences, and then in your outline, you put together sentence by sentence by sentence, organizing paragraphs into what we describe as an exegetical outline. And an exegetical outline, if you work it through the whole book, will give you an outline of the whole book. And some preachers, some Bible teachers, in their teaching, will essentially give you the exegetical outline as they developed it in their study. Now, most preachers don't go through the process that we're going through, so they just come up with a what's called a sermonic outline, kind of an outline of what they want to preach. And even some Bible teachers do that as well. They'll perhaps base it on an exegetical outline, but generally their sermonic outline oftentimes is not exactly the same as the exegetical outline. So what we are attempting to do is come up with an exegetical outline, and personally, because I do more teaching than I do preaching, my exegetical outline is basically what I'm going to cover when I deal with a passage in any given talk or sermon or class or whatever I'm doing. And generally, if I do this on a book level and do this consistently, then I will just basically pass out an outline, and it'll be my exegetical outline. And in the case of Hebrews, I usually have an outline within an outline. (laughs) So within the outline, sometimes I'll put certain things, either applications or added notes or those sort of things, within the exegetical outline. So this is what we are attempting to do, and in outlining, we are attempting to convey the thoughts of the author in a way that is understandable such that we, from this outline we can communicate what the author is trying to communicate. So, in outlining, grammar dictates your exegetical outline. It's the grammar, at least the starting point, that dictates the fine detail of your exegetical outline. And I'm going to go back to the Acts 1-8 passage that we diagrammed and show you from that diagram how this grammar will in fact dictate an exegetical outline for Acts 1-8 at least. And we'll put it within the broader context as well. So the, the grammar dictates the outline And corresponding to that, we could say, secondly, the outline, as we've been saying, reflects the structure. Or, in other words, the outline should reflect the grammar. Because the grammar is put together in a certain way, giving you the structure, so the outline should reflect the structure. So that's what you're, that's your goal, trying to accomplish. We're dealing with paragraphs. And each paragraph, by definition, are a unit of thought or an idea, a main idea. So when you're outlining at the paragraph level, you're trying to capture the main idea that the author is trying to communicate in that total paragraph. Now, we don't think about it, but if you're a writer and you write, you are consciously attempting 
to formulate paragraphs that all contain one idea, and each of those sentences contributes to that main idea. So in going back in Scripture, we're trying to trace back what was the main idea that the author intended to communicate in this paragraph. And we want to summarize that in less than a sentence, usually a phrase or a few words, or maybe even one word if you can capture it in one word. So your paragraphs will be your main points in your outline. The sentences and the clause or clauses are the subpoints within the paragraph. So that each sentence contributes to that main point of that paragraph. So it should be similar or have some elements that are conveyed by the main point of each paragraph. Otherwise, we're not understanding what the author is communicating. So, if you have three sentences, you would generally have three subpoints that together give you that main idea or that main point. And that main idea or main point is a summary of those three subpoints, if you have three sentences, for example. Got it? This is just basic literature. Not anything different. Scripture is written in that way. And if you have any clauses within a sentence or phrases, these are your lesser points within your exegetical outline. Is that clear? Is that everyone tracking on that? So what is a main idea and what we're attempting to do at every level of your outline We're coming up with a main idea that summarizes whatever that portion represents. If it it represents an entire sentence, then we're looking for the main idea, and a main idea should summarize the content of every point of the outline. So you're looking for a main idea of the paragraph. You're looking for a main idea of each sentence. You're looking for a main idea of each clause. You're looking for a main idea of each sub-part of each clause. And what I mean by main idea is just a summarization of the content of each of those parts. And when you get to the book level, you come up with a main idea of the whole book. Remember we did that when we talked about preliminary exegesis. So you're just going part by part trying to summarize the content or the communication that the Holy Spirit is communicating within each passage. Once you can do that, you have an understanding of what is being communicated. So, let's take a look at outlines. And this is pretty standard. This is pretty basic. So, what I'm using is something that should be fairly familiar with all of you. And I'm going to do this outlining from a book level, working all the way in to the finer details. And we're just basically going over structural units. Number one, your Roman numerals. Remember when we did the preliminary exegesis, your Roman numerals are main ideas or titles of divisions. So they're division main ideas or titles. And I mentioned most books only have two, three, four, maybe five divisions. Gave you some examples. Book of Romans, probably no more than five, possibly even 
if you include conclusion and introduction, possibly three divisions. So even longer book. Book of Genesis, remember the example I gave you? Two divisions. Fifty chapters, two divisions. Those are your Roman numerals. At the capital A level, those that's your subdivision level. Same thing, you're looking for the main idea or title, if you want to use that word, of that subdivision. And what that subdivision title is giving you is a summary of everything contained within that portion, within that subdivision. Then what do we have? Your one would be, if a book has a section, then the main idea or title. Shorter books may not have sections, it may be simply paragraphs. Section, main idea, or title. Little a, your subsection, main idea, or title. We're just working in. One with a half a parenthesis, the paragraph, main idea, or title. So that's your paragraph level. So you're trying to summarize everything in that paragraph. Your little a with half a parenthesis. Uh, this would be your sentence level. Sentence or clause, and you have a B, and if you have an, a little a, you need to have a corresponding little b. If you have a one, half parentheses, you, have a, you should have a corresponding two. This is just basic outline. All the way through, if you have a little a, you need to have a little b. If you have a one, you need to have a two. If you have a capital A, you should have a b. And if you have a Roman numeral 1, you should have a Roman numeral 2. Pretty simple. Basic outlining. Now, obviously, if you prefer a different convention, that's fine, as long as you're consistent and you know what you're, you're doing in terms of what each part of the outline represents. But this is pretty standard. So each main idea at each of those levels should summarize the content of each part of that outline. The main idea should summarize the content of the outline. And the outline should be an expansion of the main idea. So your, your capital A, your capital B, should be an expansion of your Roman numeral 1 or your Roman numeral 2 all the way down the line. So they should correspond. In other words, you're, you're talking about the same thing. You're just going down into deeper levels of what's being communicated. Is that clear? Does that, can you see that in your mind, how to do that? This is just to make it clear, just what I stated. So at your divisional level... Your divisional main idea should summarize A, B, C, however many parts you have of that division. should summarize. So also with your A, that should summarize all of the one, two, three, four, however many. Captures the summary or the essence of it. And at that level, your ones should summarize, summarize your little A, your little B, your little C and on, uh, etc., all the way down to however many smaller parts you have in your outline. So that's outlining. Let's take uh, an example from this Acts 1, 7, and 8. And in this case, 
It's actually a sentence, and what we want to do is we're going to grammatically break it down. But within the book of Acts, we're going to have an exegetical outline. We're going to have a Roman numeral. We're going to have a divisional level. And since we're only working with these two, let me just kind of... In fact, we don't even need to know what that is. This is the divisional level. And in this division, what I have found that we have... Capital A that probably includes only verses 1 through 5. And then we have a a B. So this is already at the paragraph level, at least on this division. Some of the other divisions after, probably division 2, the the paragraph level is probably deeper in. So B, I've got 1, 6 through 11. This is the paragraph where Acts 1, 7 through 8 would fall. Okay, so we're going to try and come up with some descriptive phrase that captures this entire paragraph, and which would be a summary of each of the sentences in there. Now, I also see that under this B, that obviously we have a a verse 6 here, so I'm going to have something in here that's going to summarize this sentence. So this is the paragraph level, this is the sentence level, at least in this portion. The paragraph level may not always be a capital B, as I said. It may be deeper in, depending on the size of that division. But in the book of Acts, obviously the first division is probably smaller. In fact, this is probably an introduction, and you might come up with a summary of some way of describing what's in the content there. So this is shorter. And in fact, what do I have here? Simply 1 through 11. So the division 2 down here is going to be 1, 12 through, I don't have it on my outline, but it goes probably to the end of chapter 7. See what we're doing so far? So we're at verse 6. So now this is the, this is the sentence that is dealing with the diagramming that we did last week. Now, in analyzing this, we're going to try and come up with a a statement that captures kind of the whole communication there, the whole sentence. But we also are going to break it down. We have an independent clause here, number one independent clause. We have an independent clause here, this is number two. We have an independent clause, number three. And independent clause number four. And we have a few subordinate clauses. We've got S1, let's call that, subordinate S2. So those are the big parts of that sentence. And that grammar is going to dictate priority in terms of what we're going to have here. So this sentence, we're going to come up with a description of it. So at this level, this is going to be kind of the level at which we either put an independent or, depending on the structure, possibly a dependent clause. So he said, how we deal with that at this point it is hard to kind of come up with, even though this is probably the main uh, independent clause. And in terms of the grammar... Grammatically, this has priority over 2, 3, and 4. In trying to outline it, since you only have 1 here, 
I'm probably going to put this either at the same level or somehow subsume this into these other one, two, three. Does that make sense? In outlining? Because remember, if you have, if you have an A, you have to have a B. So I'm not going to put this at the A level and then these others as little one, little two, little three. Even though grammatically that's the priority. So I might in some way try to summarize this with A and then with B. And in fact, what I'm going to do is put this together with this and then try to put this together with this other part. So I'm going to, I'm going to group these together and I'm going to prioritize these two ideas. So on a little A, I'm going to try to come up with a statement that captures all of that. So he said, it is not to know times and epochs, stop there, and then we have subordinate clause. And the way I've come up with this, we'll wait until we kind of come with the parts here to, to give a description here. Something along the lines of things, rises not. The main thing I want you to catch here is what I'm trying to do here. You might disagree with the wording, and that's fine, or we might come up with better wording. Uh, things Jesus advises toward inattention. And I'm going to say that's all of verse 7 in this case. So this is going to be 7. Things Jesus advises toward inattention. It captures this part, Jesus speaking. And remember, we're in the interpretive stage, so we're, we're making conclusions that this is Jesus speaking. And these are things that include other, you know, more than one idea here. He said this is what he wants them not to pay attention to or inattention. And which leads us, because of this contrast, we have things here down at this level saying the same thing. Think almost things Jesus advises to give. And that's verse 8. So we have these two contrasted. Is that captured? Good enough? It's a little broad, it's a little long, but... So basically what I've done is I've put this one statement. He said this. In other words, he's advising this to not give attention towards. And he's advising these two things to focus in or give attention to. And then under here, you could break this down into one with parentheses and try to capture these parts. And you have at least two things here because you have a subordinate clause. So I might catch the independent clause, and I might catch the subordinate clause in a, in a two. So I might say the advisement, and you might even have a little a here, here, and a little b that go with this, knowing times, if you want to break down, knowing Epochs. And then your two, uh, uh, summarized it here, the providence, or something along those lines. The providence of God, which God has fixed. Things that God has established, the providence. So that captures the subordinate clause. So I've got, because you have in outlining, I'm putting these somewhat on the same level, even though grammatically one is subordinate to the other. So these are decisions that you make just in terms of coming up with your outline, but you're essentially understanding the same ideas. You're trying to capture them. You're trying to summarize them in some way. So these two parts are an expansion of the things that Jesus advises. 
toward inattention. These are the details of this little A. Things Jesus advises to give attention. We have two very clear things. We have two independent clauses. So we have a one here, two here. So we have attention. Uh, he wants to send the advisement on available power. A good summary. You shall receive power, advisement on available power. This is what Jesus is advising them. Uh, since you only have one subordinate clause, you might make that the second thing here. You might have the, just use info on, or maybe the timing, Holy Spirit coming. Something along those lines. And then your three is your other independent clause. You shall be advisement on the witnesses. We may, when it's all said and done, we may refine it, we may simplify it, but this is the goal. We're, I'm trying to summarize everything here. This statement is a summary of these three statements. These three are an expansion of that statement. Now we've got the parts, and by the way, if you want to, you can break the other down here in terms of, you could give a uh, little A here, little B here, little C. It summarizes the locations. You might say something along the lines of being witnesses in Jerusalem, being witnesses in Judea and Samaria, unless you want to separate those, and being witnesses to the uttermost parts. Be your little A, parentheses, but be And now we want to capture all of these parts at this sentence level. So, in what way might we capture what uh, is stated here? Something along the lines for some of the advisement of Jesus. Advisement of Jesus or advisement of his work. I think I'll start with what he said. Jesus' advisement on importance and non-importance of their future ones or issues related to their future ones. That captures or just very simply, advisement for ministry. Or Jesus' advisement for ministry. I capture all of And then detail brings out the importance and non-importance. In fact, that would be better. Simplified it. Still captures the essence. Jesus is advising two things. In contrast, one is not to pay attention to certain things. The other one is to pay attention to certain things. Yeah, what? Now, is the purpose of doing this out to make the diagram more easily understood? No. The purpose of the outline is to make sure I understand what is being communicated by the grammar, right. by the communication. It's forcing me to think through what the grammar is communicating, the Holy Spirit is yeah, I would say surprising them about the enablement they're going to have and, and what they're going to be doing with it. Okay. Okay, you say the advisement on enablement available or something like that? Yeah. To do what they're going to do. That's probably what better. Going to be doing. That's probably better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, things Jesus advises concerning enablement, future enablement. Maybe just future ministry there. And then one of these would be event enablement. One of them would be function. Yeah, that would be better. Because when you started, I looked at the, the diagram, I thought, oh, it says it right there. I mean, you can just 
clearly see, blah, blah, blah. But then when you start doing that outline, right. it was like, oh. Now I understand what he's saying. Yeah. Yeah. And by the time you get to your refined outline, you're, you're close to the end of the exegetical process. Now, once I diagram a passage, I will begin with an outline. In other words, I will start an outline. I will continue to work through the details of it and change, just like we changed here on the board. Revise it, oh, this is better, scratch this out. And by the time Sunday evening is, comes around, or <clears throat> by that time, oh, okay, I feel good about this. See what we're doing here? That's the main thing. So basically, you deal with the sentences themselves through from your diagramming, and then you try to summarize them in a sentence statement, and you work through the book. And once you work through the book, then you have several pages of outline of that book. And week after week, as you teach, if you're just teaching verses 1 through 7 and 8, that one sentence, and there's plenty there for a whole Sunday morning, then your outline reflects this part. It's just a couple of general questions. Um, we've all outlined books before, outlined material before. What are, what are the find? What's the pitfall that we're going to find you know with the diagram process and directly out? Well, you can do the same thing with the basic analysis, the basic analysis. Not to the refined level. Well, actually, you could do it to the refined level. You're just not diagramming. What's the, what's the big importance of diagramming? The diagramming is it forces you to make a grammatical decision on every word in that sentence. Sometimes, if you spend enough time on it, you can maybe alliterate. I call this the the advisement for ministry, and just to alliterate it, you might say the anticipation, where you a verse 6, anticipation of the disciples, or anticipation of the kingdom, verse 6. And then you put these two together, and we have, well, there's a, also a 3 and a 4, so this is leading up, so I call this basically the, you might add to it, 6 through 11, dealing with the ascension. So we've got aftermath, ascension, anticipation, advisement. Everybody got it? Main thing, the main thing I want you to see, the outline comes right out of your grammatical analysis. Essentially understanding the content. I'm thinking God's thoughts after him. The outline that I passed out is an example of an outline for that Ephesians 4 passage that I gave you an example of an outline. So you might compare the diagramming that I gave you and see if you can trace back like we did with that Acts 1, 7, and 8 sentence. This is an exegetical outline of that passage. And just to highlight a few things there, Notice I've got a divisional Roman numeral there. I don't spell it out for you. Number one and then a number two. So that Ephesians 4, at least in the way that I broke it down, and there may be a three, Roman numeral three, depending on how you break the book of Ephesians down. But if you see a division starting in chapter 4, verse 1, That's the divisional breakdown. Then you have a capital A, and I don't give a summary of it. That would be the subdivisional 
idea that you would come up with. That's also beginning chapter 4, verse 1, probably goes beyond the passage we're looking at. You have a 1 under the A, that's the paragraph in Ephesians. That's the paragraph breakdown, at least in this division. And that the first paragraph would be verses 1 through 6, at least in the New American Standard, using an English version. So the second paragraph would begin in verse 7, and that would run through verse 16, and that's where the outline of the diagramming comes in. And actually, I only diagram beginning in verse 11, so I give you the outline. I give you an A and a B and a C and a D under number 2 there, under the, within that paragraph. Four parts, four sentences, basically. Four sentences. So I see verse 7 as a complete sentence. The giving of gifts involves grace. Try to summarize that. I've got two parts there. Little b, the giving of gifts has Old Testament support. Essentially a quote from the Old Testament. That's chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Verse 8 is the biblical basis or the quote, the biblical Old Testament quote. And then verses 9 through 10 is the amplification of that quote, or you might say exposition or explanation. Uh, That might describe the same thing there, or Paul's amplification, however you want to phrase it there. And then the paragraph that we diagrammed, chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, that would be that first sentence in the New American Standard. The giving of gifts results in far-reaching results. Verse 11, that part, remember that was the independent clause, verse 11. Actually, it ran through verse 12, but I've broken it down into two parts there. Foundational gifts are manifested in gifted men. And I've got four categories, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor, teachers. That's verse 11. And the ministry of gifted men is amplified, verse 12, or you might say the the purpose of gifts or the ministry of the gifted men's purpose, or something along those lines, verse 12. And remember, those are the the three sets of prepositional phrases. I've elevated that because that seems as significant as just the giving of gifts themselves, or put it at least at the same level. The ministry of gifted men is amplified. Gifted men equip the Christian for service. And then the Christian performs the work of service, and the resulting ministry is edification of the body. Does that summarize those series of prepositional phrases? And then three, under the third part there, the ministry is performed until the results are attained. That's also a subordinate clause. But I've kind of broken that down into three parts, that sentence. The independent clause, and then the heart of it, and then the subordinate clause I put on the same outline level at least to kind of get the flow of thought there. So one, two, and three with little half parentheses there should summarize the giving of gifts results in far-reaching results. You have the giving part in gifted men. You have the ministry part. And then you have the results part in the third thing there in verse 13 until certain things are attained. In the next sentence, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, the giving of gifts results in immediate ministry. And then I break that down into two parts. And once you get to verse 16, then that goes into the next paragraph. So number 3 under 
capital A there, you have another paragraph main idea, wherever that paragraph ends. You see that? That's an exegetical outline. In terms of priority, you might disagree and rearrange this, but you should have something very similar to what I've broken down in terms of structure. So this lays out not only the structure of this passage, but it gives you the content, structure and content. Okay, let's take the next step. We've looked at structural analysis. And by the way, we'll probably come back and do more of this later on after we've gone through the whole process. But the next thing that you want to do is to do a little work in the area of history and culture. History and culture. Totally different area. This gets away from grammar. This gets away from the broader idea of structure and looks at any elements in a passage relating to history and culture that contributes to our understanding. And books like the book of Acts are historical works, so you expect that there's going to be a lot of notes or a lot of references to things of the first century and before, things that took place in the time frame of the writer, and in this case it would be Luke. As we've already mentioned, I introduced this to you when we were talking about observations, and now what you're doing is you're taking some of those observations, the particulars of what you have observed, for example, the author, now is the point where you begin to think in terms of not only who the author is, but what was his situation? What was his situation when he wrote this book? Some of the things that we were just discussing that Jim was raising concerning Luke as the author of Acts, what was going on with him, why did he write to this individual named Theophilus, and if you don't understand who Luke is, maybe a little background on him. So... If that is pertinent and contributes, some of this you would have done at the uh, book level when you did a book study, but these issues might crop up again as you work your way through the particulars. So you should be aware of who the author is throughout, and again, who the readers are and who the what the circumstances of the readers who is this Theophilus? Now, we may not know too much about him personally, but one thing that we can learn about him is that he seemed to have had a curiosity of Jesus Christ, and Luke tries to clarify some issues with him. That would be the initial readers. The occasion of the writing, these are particulars. These are more on the book level. Why did this book come about? And I should add there, not only the occasion, but whatever other historical issues that might arise within any given passage. And in the case of this Acts 1, 7 and 8, particularly the following and the preceding passages, the preceding passages give us the context of that whole occasion where this advisement is given. It's on the occasion of Christ appearing for the very last time to the disciples. So, 
it's after all of the appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospels. And there are several occasions where Christ appeared to not only disciples, he appeared to women, were not strictly the twelve disciples. He appeared to 500 on one occasion. Paul records that in 1 Corinthians 15. So this is the last appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the occasion of this particular passage that we did a little bit of work in. So the mindset, thats we answered the question already. Why are they talking about the kingdom? Well, this is what they would have expected in terms of the coming of Messiah. And now that Messiah is resurrected, this is, this is a normal, natural question for them to ask. So what was their idea? What was their concept of the kingdom? What was the disciples' concept? What did they think of when they thought of a kingdom? Now, if you're covenant theology or you're a covenant theologian, you would be thinking, well, the kingdom is the church. Or if you're amillennial, you think that the kingdom is the church. Well, is that idea present in the thinking of the disciples? Probably the, they probably had no clue concerning that. They're thinking in terms of everything the Old Testament talks about concerning the kingdom. Probably nothing more. Jesus never redefined the kingdom in terms of what some theologians try to teach concerning the kingdom today. Getting off on some theology here, some preaching, but... <laughs> The point I'm getting at here, that's a historical situation that to understand this passage, it's helpful to understand the disciples' understanding of the kingdom at that time in their thinking. What was their concept of the kingdom? And why did they ask that question? Well, it's very normal. It's the expected question of any Jew that was anticipating becoming a messiah. So, verse 7 is very crucial because Jesus now is shifting their attention because they don't know it. They're assuming the kingdom is going to be established. They have no clue that there's going to be at least 2,000 years of ministry that they're going to begin. They've totally forgotten about that ecclesia that Jesus promised he would establish. Now, he doesn't mention it here. But he does announce another historical thing that comes into play here is when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, what's that all about? How does that fit into history? So that's an issue that you need to raise in this passage. Those are the kinds of historical things that you raise. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, what would a disciple think when the Holy Spirit comes upon you? Well, I'm not a king. I'm not a prophet. Uh, I'm not a judge. You know, what's this Holy Spirit? Well, this would probably, you probably need to go back to the upper room discourse to understand this phrase, or at least to understand what the disciples thought of this phrase. Where in the upper room, Jesus spoke of the coming of the paraclete, coming of the comforter or the Holy Spirit. And he states something revolutionary that was totally different from their understanding and their past. When they thought of the Holy Spirit coming upon someone, they would think of a prophet, of a king, of a judge, or someone very unusual. They did not understand the concept of a universal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They didn't understand that 
until a few days later at Pentecost. And God had to miraculously impress upon them this radical change from the Old Testament. So this has great historical significance, that little phrase right there. Those are the things that you begin to probe and think through. And if need be, look up some of those issues related. See what we're saying here when you deal with history? In order to understand that passage. So, this Holy Spirit coming upon them has radical historical significance to those first believers. Now, in our understanding, we look back on that and see and understand that we're living in an age that is very unique and very different from all prior history of humanity. Church age is a unique period of time where this happened. That's why that illustration I gave you when we were talking about purpose and I talked about how charismatics take those four passages or three passages after Pentecost. This was such a radical thing that what God had to do for the disciples of the first century and particularly the leaders is show them that Pentecost had to happen in four different environments in order for them to overcome their years and years of prejudice against Samaritans, for example. God gave them their own Pentecost in that incident that we looked at in, uh, what was it, uh, chapter 8. And, and then even greater than that, the Gentiles, God gave Peter another Pentecost-type experience where there was speaking in tongues with Cornelius because this is radical, because this this whole thing is changing. Even Gentiles are going to be indwelled with the Holy Spirit? What? Not even all Jews get that. So, what Jesus had to do is give Peter not only a vision of unclean things and told, you got to eat those. So he was given a vision, he was given an explanation, and now he give, he's given another Pentecost. Okay? So that's why we have those four examples, because historically the, the the disciples needed those experiences to begin to understand, and then by the time Paul writes about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's a universal thing. Now, now that's the typical, and it happens at the moment of salvation. In the book of Acts, it didn't because we needed the demonstration. Make sense? So, that little phrase is very important historically to understand what was going on in that time frame. And we have, you know, these are cultural or issues relating to geography, so it's good to understand Jerusalem, uh, what's significance about that. Well, that's this the heart of Judaism, and, and this is where Christianity is going to begin, right in the heart of Judaism, right where Messiah is going to focus his ultimate coming, but it begins there. It expands to these outer areas. Judea is no problem. Samaria, huge problem. You mean we got to witness to Samaritans? we got to be witnesses there? Well, if that's bad enough, you've got to go to the ends of the earth. you got to go to the barbarians. <laughs> yeah, Washington, exactly. <laughs> so this is radical. And history is intertwined in all of that. So that's what we're talking about when we deal with historical. And sources is the book itself. And in, in the case of our example here, the book itself, what's going to go 
on in terms of Pentecost in chapter 2. That's when this is fulfilled. So the book itself gives us some answers. And you start with the book looking for what else does this book say about either the author or the circumstances or situations or particular issues. You can go elsewhere in the New Testament or in some cases even the Old Testament. These are sources to go to. And most of us are not equipped to exhaust everything that we need from the New Testament or the Old Testament. So we go to reference works where people have done research. Your main tool there is a Bible dictionary, or if you have access to a Bible encyclopedia, or introductions to the Old Testament, or introductions to the New Testament, or commentaries, all of these or different sources. Do you have any recommendations for real, good, historical, cultural, I mean, what's the best? As far as you're concerned, obviously, your opinion. The starting point would be, what is it, Zondervan's Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible, I believe. I'd go with it. It's rather complete, still a standard. There's a lot of things that are coming out uh, electronically, but that's still a pretty good standard. Because it'll, it'll deal with everything. It'll, it'll deal with all of the historical, cultural issues of the Bible. But commentaries, if you're doing a particular book, for example, and you get a good exegetical commentary on that book, whatever book that may be, every one of those will give you an introduction, and it'll deal with issues, and it'll also, at particular points, in a passage, say you're in chapter 12 and you're dealing with a paragraph in the middle of that chapter and there's a historical thing there, it'll give you insight into some of those things related to that historical incident. Okay, that's history. Let's take a break and we'll come back and look at culture.